Hello and welcome to the November the 15th. It's the 15th, isn't it? I think it is. Yeah, not very good at dates this week. Remember, I kept throw, actually, I've been convinced it was October most of today. <laughs> I don't know why. Anyway, no, Friday, November the 15th edition of the We Ginger Dugcast with me, Paul Kavanagh, and I'm joined by Stuart Ward of the National this week because Callum is far too busy. Yes. Yeah, well, he's taken on a new job, hasn't he? He's also the editor of the Evening Times yes, now. So. and I think they've got some stuff in the work for the National as well, just now that he's so he's doing double duty. He's a, he's a busy boy. <laughs> he is, yeah. But we're, we're going to be filling in even better, I think. That's you know? it, yeah, yeah. I think yeah. this is a, a far better team, so, yeah. That's it, of course, of course. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully now his family members are listening now. Aye, because we'll... Always slagging me off for interrupting me. <laughs> so I, it's been quite a busy week though in general. Mm. We've had the, obviously the general election campaign is really kicking off now. Um, the big news from a Scottish point of view this week is that the SNP is taking ITV to court mm-hmm. um, over their, well, frankly, outrageous decision to exclude them from uh, debate. Mm-hmm. So the SNP court case is a, sec- a separate court case from the Lib Dem court case. The Lib Dems are also taking ITV to court over this decision because what ITV wants to do is to have a debate between Jeremy Corbyn and Boris Johnson and no one else. And that's... The, the, the Lib Dems say reasonably, I think, you know, that that is excluding people who want to revoke Article 50, uh, if this is a general election that's primarily about Brexit, it's really important that those people are represented and we're the only people that can represent that. However, the Lib Dems just want Joe Swinson to be included. They don't want anyone else to be included because, yet again, the Lib Dems go and spoil a perfectly good argument with rampant hypocrisy. Incredible, isn't it? I know. <laughs> with such consistency. Yep. There's just, that's the one thing that you can rely on the Lib Dems for is to be <laughs> utterly, utterly... Shame, fa- uh, no shame at all in their hypocrisy. Mm-hmm. Um, the SNP case, uh, I think personally, and I'm not just saying this because I personally would vote as it be, it's uh, a lot more principled. The SNP is saying that, well, wait a minute, you know, this isn't, a, we don't live in a presidential system. We're not having this election to choose a prime minister. We're having this election to choose MPs. And it's therefore only fair that all the other parties should be represented as well, uh, the way that they were back in 2015, when they had a seven-way debate. Um, So they're arguing for themselves to be included, and for the Lib Dems, and for the other parties too. Uh, And also because in Scotland, you know, the SNP are by far and away the largest party, both in terms of votes, both in terms of, of... the number of seats they currently hold, as well as in voting intentions and opinion polls. So it grossly distorts the Scottish election just to have Jeremy Corbyn, who represents the fourth biggest party in Scotland, and Boris Johnson, who represents the second biggest party in Scotland, without having any representatives from the SNP. And also because we've had, you know, the issue of another Scottish independence referendum has come up in this general election campaign already and it's blatantly unfair for there to be only two representatives of parties which are opposed to another independence referendum without having anyone to put the case for having one. 
it's just ridiculously egregious. It really is. And you know, I was kind of Stuart Cosgrove in, in last weekend Sunday National was kind of talking about this idea of, of you know is it malice or is it just this complete London bias? It was, you know, kind of just the only mindset. So you give an example of you know when he was back um, in Channel Four a documentary which. You know, they were looking for stuff to cut in a life story of Alex Ferguson, at least where all the Scottish bits can go. And really? so, do you think it's it is just it's unintentional bias? Or yes, actually, I do. Mm. I don't think it's deliberate, but um, I think it reflects a really deep-seated set of attitudes. There was a very interesting wee video on social media the other day, and they were asking people in London what they knew about Scottish. Welsh and Northern Irish politics and do you think that these countries are valued and you know, members, valued parts of the United Kingdom and none of them knew anything at all you know, there was one <laughs> woman there, who's the Scottish First Minister, oh I don't know, I've no idea, but I do like that Nicola Sturgeon, oh my god said. <laughs> <laughs> most of them were just one guy went, oh, uh, something about a fish he went, something that, that oh my god. that was it, you know uh, Northern Ireland and Wales came off even worse actually no one it. could name the Welsh First Minister Mark Drakeford um, though to be fair I think a lot of people in Wales <laughs> used to know <laughs> him as well he's the sort of the Richard Leonard of Wales you know, he's, kinda, he's not exactly notable for his charisma um, but yeah and I mean certainly when I lived in London and I lived there for 10 years. I mean, it was a long time ago now, uh, probably shockingly before you were born. <laughs> no, maybe not. It was in the 90s. 95? Uh, well, yeah, I was living in London when you were born. <laughs> I hate you. I just hate you. <laughs> they just, the only reason they asked me on this podcast, by the way, is to make me feel so old. It is. it is. You and bloody Callum. It's ever since that well. first comment I made about it, yeah, it's gone, it's gone that way. <laughs> let's not rescind that. Let's not bring that comment back up. Continue. Now, what was that again? Remind me. No, no, no. Let's just continue. Let's press on. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, aye. Um, and what I found when I lived in London was just a complete lack of interest mm-hmm. in Scotland. You know, basically the world stopped at the, the M25. And beyond that was, you know, there'd be dragons. Mm-hmm. And there was just no interest at all. And I don't think for the most part it's malicious. But they just have no interest because yeah. Scotland is, as far from a London perspective, it's a far away, distant province, and that's how they see it as mm-hmm. a province, um, and they've no interest in it and no knowledge about it. You know, so they don't because they think it's small and insignificant and far away. They don't really think it should figure in. You know national debates which from their perspective are really about what's going on in London and the southeast of England. I mean it's all it's, and it's, it's as dangerous I mean the, you know the, there's no kind of there's no winning this because this is just so ingrained in, in the mindset. Well exactly. So no matter what we say or what we do it's not going to you're not going to win that battle of, of changing that culture and because uh, I mean let's remember I know there's going to be a kind of spe- a question time special with Nicholas Sturgeon and Joe Swinson but I mean this is we see us every week. There's something with the BBC along these lines, and we've got issues with Sky as well. It is just so ingrained. Yeah, yeah. Um, but like I said, I don't think it's malicious. No, it's um, just but the problem is that when, as a Scottish person, you try and challenge it, you get accused of being a chippy Scot. Mm. You know, it's just you being you well balanced Scot. You get a chip in both shoulders, that kind of stuff, you know. And in fact, when I lived in London. 
and it was during the whole debate about whether or not we should have a Scottish Parliament, you know. Um, and I actually gave up talking about Scottish politics to English people because it was just banging your head off a brick wall. Mm-hmm. Because the because the media doesn't represent Scotland, you know, the UK media doesn't portray Scotland uh, they don't know anything about Scotland so they view it through a prism of prejudice Mm -hmm. really, because that's all they know, it's not deliberate, it's not malicious it's just because if you have no other information you know, and no one is telling you that it's important that you find out the information, then obviously you view things through your preconceived ideas. So they're incapable of thinking about Scottish independence in any other terms than, well, it must be because they all hate the English. Mm-hmm. You know, and we constantly get that. But because we are fed a diet of English media here in Scotland, then we get that kind of narrative coming from anti independence supporters in Scotland. People who really should know better. You know, they're quite happy to feed into that as well. You know, and I think I've always thought that the United Kingdom would come to an end, not because of the SNP, but because of England. Mm-hmm. You know, because England's just not interested in reaching any sort of accommodation with the other countries that form the United Kingdom. I think as well, as you say, it's people who should know better. I mean, it's kind of the, the Joe Swinson thing as well with. English nationalism and Scottish nationalism are the same thing. Right. That kind of lazy, lazy, lazy argument. You just can't get away with it here. Actually, some of the worst people, um, you know, from lived in London was was uh, the expat Scot, mm. you know, who'd left Scotland many decades ago and their attitudes about Scotland were still kind of preserved in aspect from the time that they left. There's a very good example of that, actually, during the independence referendum campaign uh, when Andrew Marr, came up, I think it was to the Edinburgh Book Festival and he made this comment about, oh but you all know it's about English anti-English anti-English racism, you know and that was a comment that he made, he hasn't lived in Scotland for decades mm-hmm. you know, and maybe, you know 30, 40 years ago, those attitudes were more prevalent in this small proportion of people who back then supported Scottish independence uh, but Scotland's changed an awful lot. The independence movement's changed mm-hmm. an awful lot. It's far more mature, it's far more growing up, it's far more articulate than it used to be. But Andrew Marr's conception of it was preserved in this sort of 1970s bubble. And yet because some national, UK national broadcaster had made this comment, all of a sudden we got, you know, we had this anguished debate on BBC Scotland about, you know, this deep dark evil that lurked at the very solo, you know, the very heart of the Scottish psyche, you know, whereas equivalent examples example, not even equivalent, examples of blatant anti-Scottish racism in the English media are just, oh that's just a bit of banter and if you object to that you're a chippy Scot you know, and there's this terrible double standard that is operating and I think that's what we're seeing with this, you know, to get back to the thing about the, the, the election debates, I think that's what we're seeing with these election debates, it's that double standard is operating, it's well we're the important people, you should just be doing what you're told And it's not just of course Labour this one, or Lib Dems this week who have been having a week of it, we've got some Brexit party goings on as well Yes Yes, well, we had the visit of Jeremy Corbyn, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Of course, yeah. Uh, Jeremy Corbyn yeah. was here and nobody really noticed. <laughs> <laughs> and he managed, behind you, I know, he managed to contradict himself about you know when Scotland should get another independence referendum. First of all, he said that there wouldn't be an independence referendum within the first term of a Labour government, which is five years. Um, previously, the Labour Party had said that um, if the SNP win in 2021, you know, then they'll consider it, which is so nice of them. Very kind. They'll, they'll consider allowing Scotland to be, have democracy. No wonder they're doing so well. Not exactly. And then he, the Labour Party produced this other, you know, press release saying, oh no, what he really meant was <laughs> that he doesn't think the SNP are going to get a majority in 2021. That's what he said. Mm. Um, and then he later on said that he wouldn't, there wouldn't be an independence referendum within two years of a Labour government. Um, meanwhile, the Tories are saying there won't be one at all under any circumstances. It doesn't matter who wins in this general election. It doesn't matter who wins in 2021. And really what shocks me about the UK media is that they're not challenging that. It's perfectly OK for these politicians to say to Scotland, we're not allowing you to have this. You know, and they usually, you know, very often in reports about it, I've noticed on the on the, the UK news, they preface it with, oh, because Scotland was promised it was a once in a generation referendum, you know, and that's like as though somehow that was some sort of solid manifesto commitment, mm-hmm. you know, instead of just well, what it was, it, it was rhetoric, and it was the individual views of per- individual politicians. I personally never signed up to that as an independent supporter, oh, well, okay, ask me now and then, don't ever ask me for another 25 years. And I don't think you did either. I didn't, no. No. Funnily enough, I don't think many of our readers did either. But they have a very peculiar literalism when it suits them. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's, it's outrageous that they think that Scotland... I mean, I, I said this last week, you know, I think it's a mandate for another independence referendum is far more important in a Westminster election because it's Westminster that has constitutional powers, powers to change the constitution than a Holyrood election but they're now saying oh well no it's got to be a Holyrood election and not a Westminster election because they know they're going to get their backsides kicked in this election so they're kind of kicking it down mm-hmm. the road in the hope that something anything will happen between now and 2021 that will make people not vote for a pro-independence party and it's, it's so obvious that that's what they're doing. And at the same time, what they're trying to do is to close down the debate by saying, no, it's just not going to be allowed, it's not going to be allowed, in order to try and discourage people from actually getting up and voting for a pro-independence party. Yeah, I think uh, Labour, again, as the, uh, it's customary in their visits to Scotland, uh, Jeremy Corbyn released that lovely Twitter video of the SNP let Thatcher in and... I know that's one that our readers love to see because they just pick it apart every time. See, I remember that though, mm-hmm. you know, because I'm old. Mm. But I do remember <laughs> that. Uh, and what happened was that the Callaghan government was on the verge of collapse anyway. And they had betrayed the people of Scotland on a fundamental promise that they had made to the people of Scotland about delivering. Uh, a Scottish Assembly, which had far more limited powers than the Scottish Parliament we finally ended up with many years later. And they had that infamous 40% rule, which said that 40% of the whole electorate needs to vote in favour 
you know, as in fact it turned out the the proportion of people it was pretty much the same as the EU referendum. It was fifty two percent in favour, forty eight percent against. But that wasn't enough because it didn't surpass this forty percent of the electoral room, which was introduced by Labour MPs. Scottish MPs, people from Scotland who represented English constituencies introduced that rule. You know, and it was a dreadful betrayal of the Scottish people that, you know, we had voted in favour of having a you know, a Scottish Assembly, and Labour's went, no, you're not getting it anyway. So under those circumstances, the SNP really had no choice but to say, well, we can't support you. You know, but in any event, they would only have struggled on for another few months. You know, and back then in the 1970s, there was, you know, there was strikes every other week. There was the three-day week. There was all sorts of, you know, I remember at one point in the 70s, there, there was shortages of basic commodities in supermarkets, you know, like my, I remember there was a sugar shortage, there was a light bulb shortage, there was a candle shortage, we always had blackouts, you know, and there was no way Labour was going to win that election. So the whole narrative about, oh, you let Thatcher in, that's complete bollocks. Thatcher got in because people in England voted for her. That's why Thatcher got in. And the Labour Party government, the Labour Party of, of the Callaghan government would only have survived, at best, another few months before it collapsed because it was running out of time anyway. You know, But it's a narrative that Labour is comfortable with because it bashes the SNP and because it allows Labour to avoid taking responsibility for its own failures when it was in office. Mm-hmm. It's always good for our letters in box, at least when they release that one. So. Really? That's about all it's good for, however. So, Brexit party. Mm. Mm. Talking about people who wouldn't take responsibility. <laughs> <laughs> there, we like there. there we go. Uh, I, uh, Nigel Farage mm-hmm. um, has stood down um, in seats held by the Conservatives. He said that this is a unilateral uh, leave alliance, which is quite a strange concept. Yes, isn't it? I know. <laughs> he said this is a unilateral leave concept because basically Boris Johnson called his bluff. Yes. Because Nigel Farage had said, you know, I'm going to stand against you everywhere unless you scrap the agreement and we just go for a no-deal Brexit. Um, There definitely seems to be quite a lot of machinations going on behind the scenes. Uh, We still have a very serious risk. If we have a Conservative majority government, there is a very, very real risk of a no-deal exit from the EU at the end of this one-year period when they're supposed to be negotiating a deal. And that's really what Nigel Farage is saying, oh, that's what's going to happen. So he, because he, he said he, he, he chose to believe the word of Boris Johnson. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That was a good luck with that one. <laughs> um, but I, um, so he's, he's saying that the Brexit Party candidates have all paid him £100 each for the opportunity to become a candidate, by the way. I don't believe they're getting the money back. Um they, he stood down the candidates in seats held by the Conservatives, but he's standing in seats held by the other parties. He's coming under huge pressure from the Conservatives to withdraw Brexit candidates from Labour marginals, particularly in uh, the north of England, which are strongly Leave supporting because they're saying, well, you're going to stop us from you know hoovering up the anti-Brexit vote. Uh, just yesterday, he said Nigel Farage and um, and Widdicombe backed him up. Um, this just kind of creeps me out, that woman. But anyway, uh, 
Nigel Farage, well, he creeps me out as well. <laughs> uh, Nigel, do you know I'm actually older than him? Is that right? Seriously, I was shocked. I was I was utterly shocked and appalled <laughs> when I discovered that I was older than Nigel Farage because I always thought Nigel Farage was like channeling the 1950s. It does, doesn't you know? it? Yeah. But anyway, uh, aye. So we said that um, the Tories have been bribing and threatening is what he's accused them of, and some of that this is potentially illegal. Actually, some of these if some of these allegations are correct. They could potentially be. Illegal, so we have to be careful about what we say because you know it could be the police get involved and all that. Um, but what Nigel Farage is saying that certain um, certain Brexit Party candidates have been offered, you know, honours. Certain ones have been offered, uh, you know, they've, they've been threatened. He said there's been a lot of harassment of certain. Brexit party candidates from from within the Conservatives. He says that some of this has come from number 10 itself. Uh, Anne Widdicombe said that she was offered a post negotiating the Brexit deal if she agreed to withdraw as a Brexit candidate. Um, so there's a lot of very nasty shenanigans yes. going on. And I think what is kind of, what, if we can imagine for a minute that um, we're somewhat more evil than I think we are, and if you imagine you're in Nigel Farage's sh- shoes just now, would you... That really makes me feel uncomfortable. I know. <laughs> but, you know this, is, this is the kind of bold thought experiment this podcast all about. Would you, would you stand your candidates in marginal Labour seats? I don't... It's, I'm not as egoist as, as big, I don't have as big an ego as Nigel Farage mm. really that's the thing and I think a lot of this is about his ego um, if I was a crazy swivel-eyed Brexit person mm. you know then I would think very carefully about splitting leave votes but Nigel Farage it's all about Nigel and he's it's, it's very interesting how the definition of Brexit has changed so radically over the past few years. You know, when we started, you know, before 2016, Brexit would have been something like Norway's status, you know, still a member of the European single market, still a member of the customs union, still with freedom of movement, and that would have been Brexit. But now that's not Brexit anymore. And now even, now even Boris Johnson's deal isn't Brexit, you know, out of the customs union, out of the single market, into freedom of movement and that's still not enough for the likes of Nigel Farage Uh, I can't remember who it was that said it but someone says that Brexit can never be delivered, it can only be betrayed Mm -hmm. and I think that's very true you know, so it's difficult to get into the mindset of somebody who's totally not prepared to compromise Mm -hmm. because I think that's you know, where he is. So I think now what's happening is that there's a lot of anger building up between Nigel Farage and the Conservative Party and really they're kind of, you know, evil twins, that that pair, you know. Nigel and and Boris are kind of evil twins. And there's a lot of bad blood building up between them. I think, however, Nigel Farage has a point when he says that, and that's a thing I never ever thought I would say, (laughs) 
But when he says that, you know, it's going to be harder for the Conservatives to attract Labour votes in northern working class, English northern working class constituencies, than it would be for the Brexit party. You know, and I think there's, that's probably correct. Yeah, I think you're right. I think, I think you know, if, if, if Boris, if there was no other fa- there's no ego factors, no kind of prestige factors or whatever, he would, he'd have to admit that if, if we're going to look at who's going to win those seats, it's more likely a kind of Brexit party, right. less protest kind of. Yeah. Very directly. Because the Tories have a lot of baggage. They have so much, that's it, it's the name as well, you know, it is the name. I mean, they're just, yeah, just mm. Tories. Mm-hmm. And a lot of those people in northern working class constituencies, I mean, they, you know, especially particularly older people who mm-hmm. are more inclined to vote for Brexit, you know, they remember the Thatcher era and they remember the devastation in northern working class communities and they haven't forgiven the Tories for that. And despite the fact that Farage is so associated with so much of that, he, well, he doesn't, it's not... I know, it's like, he's a, million, he's a multi-millionaire privately educated stockbroker, but he's, he's the man to challenge the elites. Mm-hmm. Aha! No. It's just, well, it's just, British politics is just... It's a bad joke. It's just a bad joke these days. So, yeah, that's Nigel Farage. Whether or not he he, he said uh, he's going to produce a dossier over the next day or so, detailing some of these things that the Conservatives, he alleges, have been up to, that could have quite a dramatic effect on the Conservatives' electoral chances. It's already noticeable that their lead has already started to whittle away. It seems that Boris Johnson is not the great communicator and campaigner that they thought he was going to be. He was booed when he finally visited uh, those the areas in, in South Yorkshire that were flooded. There was that, did you see the video on, with him obviously showing that he'd never used a mop in his life? Oh, I've not seen that. It's great. <laughs> yeah, he went into a, a shop and he was supposed to be helping with the clean-up operation with a mop and it was very obvious that he didn't know how a mop works. You know, it's just, it was, it was farcical. But he was, I mean, the, he got a very bad reaction because he said that it wasn't a national emergency, you know, and obviously that was a big open door for Jeremy Corbyn, who was able to say, oh, look, if this floods, had, if these floods had happened in, in Sussex, you know, then of course it would have been a national emergency, the Tories would have been all over it, but because it happened in the north in a working class constituency, Boris Johnson doesn't care. When he goes to visit places like that, he is like a public school boy on a gap year (laughs) visiting a a developing country Mm -hmm. and trying to ingratiate himself with the locals. That's what he's like. You know, there's just no empathy there at all. And it comes across very, very clearly that when you take him out of his natural, you know, surroundings, he, he really is completely, you know, out of sorts. A fish out of water, even. A fish out of flood water. There it is. Even there you go. <laughs> so, aye, uh, he's the, not done very there's well. There's the title for this week's podcast. <laughs> a fish out of flood water. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, Bye. and then, of course, there was the utterly disastrous uh, performance of the NHS in England. Mm. And it was quite nice, actually, for a change to see a commentator on the UK news challenging a Tory about, well, the Scottish NHS does so much better. (laughs) 
and that was quite nice to see. Uh, That's a sign of some serious issues, isn't it? It is indeed. Mm -hmm. But very, very chess in Scotland, run by the SNP. (laughs) They're doing so much better than you are. Now, to be fair, nowhere the NHS Mm -hmm. hasn't been as as, as any targets anywhere. Right, so. Scotland is performing the best in the United Kingdom, but it's still not meeting its targets. So I'm not trying to say that you know everything in Scotland is rosy, but it's a reflection of I think you know austerity. Mm-hmm. You know when you slash public services to the bone. I mean, in Scotland, obviously the NHS has devolved, uh, so it's the Scottish government that has you know responsible for it. They're channeling extra funding into the NHS over and above what would be allocated on a UK proportional level. But that means other public services have to suffer. And there's only a limited amount of what they can actually do in order to protect the NHS in Scotland from the effect of UK-wide spending decisions. Particularly when they're so keen on not kind of taxing people who probably deserve to be taxed more than they are. Well, exactly. Exactly. Um, and, and and I think part of this as well, as we see it, the Brexit threat impacts on this as well. It's worth saying, you know, we're going to struggle more to get workers and stuff like that. Very much so. This, so not all plays into it. Um, and then, of course, today we had the big announcement from the Labour Party. Mm. Uh, free broadband free for broadband. everybody. Woohoo! <laughs> so that would be good. Yeah. And it was immediately rubbished. Uh, Sky News, who also are in the broadband business, that's, coincidentally, that's totally unrelated mm-hmm. to that, that Sky News were really, oh no, it won't work, it won't work, oh, can't possibly work. <laughs> Which I thought that was quite interesting. Not, no conflict of interest at no. all. No, 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 we're not alleging anything. No, no, we'd never do that. So, yeah, uh, it's a good idea, I think. Mm. And again, this is this is kind of facilitated by kind of more tax on companies like Amazon, isn't it? Or, oh, yeah, you say, like, basically we tax Amazon and Google mm. and then they make them pay for your broadband so that you can buy things on Amazon and Google. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a kind of, a, you know, a virtuous circle uh-huh. of, of consumerism, you know, as <laughs> it were. But, yeah, it would, uh, on a more serious note, you know, it is, we're, we're moving into a, a digital economy and there are people who are excluded from that. You know, people who live in rural areas, people you know who can't afford. I mean, broadband has now become an essential. You know, like electricity or water or or power. Uh, you know, uh, and it's important that people are able to have access to that if they are able to participate in an economy. So yes, yeah, so I think it's a good policy, and I think it's something that the SNP should definitely support in Scotland mm. I would be pleased to but of course broadband is a reserved matter as is often mistakenly referred to as devolved as well by certain well not maybe a lot of Tory politicians seem to oh, constantly they try to yeah, yeah. Uh, they haven't rolled out broadband yeah. but yeah well uh, yeah, it's UK UK, <laughs> exactly. UK it's not it's not devolved I think I was giving them too much credit because Colin error is very yeah and, and you know as, as well as, as you're saying again the EU gives a fair bit of funding to help exactly. communities in the north of yeah, Scotland get on exactly. broadband, so it's another kind of area where you just see the danger of the Tory party. Um, also, just before we end off as well, just say Clara Ponsetti, obviously. Oh, yes, of course, yes. Yeah. So I think she's out on bail. Mm-hmm. Um, there's bail. been a second arrest warrant issued by the Spanish government following the conviction of the 12 in Catalonia. They've issued another arrest warrant for... Clara Ponsati and for Carlos Puigdemont in, in Belgium, both of whom are challenging them. Uh, hopefully, she will resist. Um, you know, they will be successful in their appeal against the, the extradition order because it's it's really excessive. The 
the sentences that, that, that have been handed down. Um, none of the police have been prosecuted, by the way. The police who were actually involved in the violence in, in Catalonia. Um, and it's quite a worrying development. Another very worrying development, of course, there was an old general election in Spain at the weekend there, and the far-right party has done really well, a party called Vox, who are led by some really nasty people. You know, there's some out-and-out actual fascists. Spain never underwent any process comparable to the denazification of Germany after the death of Franco, you know, and so those old fascists are all still there. And now they're very much in the ascendant again. And that's a very alarming development. Uh, just the other day, uh, yesterday in fact, I was reading a report in El País newspaper that um, uh, the Spanish Prime Minister uh, has, the, the PSOE leader has reached an agreement with Podemos to form a government. He is trying to get the ERC, the main Catalan party, to abstain uh, and not to join with the right-wing parties and voting them down because otherwise they have enough to prevent him becoming Prime Minister but not enough to actually form a government by themselves. So it's all up in the air in Spain. It's The, the fundamental question, however, in Spain remains is, is the Catalan issue a political matter or a legal one? And Fundamentally, I believe, and I think most sensible people believe, that it is a political issue and it can only be solved politically. What the right wing want to do in Spain is to deal with it through the courts and to criminalise people who are campaigning for Catalan independence and that's never going to work because if you close down democratic roots of expression, people are only left with, you know, the alternatives are civil disobedience and potentially violence and that's a very, very alarming development that no one should want but if you close down democratic routes then people vent their frustrations in other ways Now, and I'm certainly not advocating quite the reverse that, you know that anything like that should ever happen in Scotland but I do would appeal to you know, that's what concerns me so much about this blanket refusal from the anti-independence parties in Scotland to allow... I mean, if the people of Scotland say in this general election that's coming, we have given all our votes to the SNP, the SNP are going to, if hypothetically the SNP end up with, say, 50 MPs, which would be a fantastic result for them, elected on a mandate for a Scottish independence referendum, who are the other parties to say no to that? You know, if you close down Scottish democratic expression, we will end up with a situation like Spain, like Catalonia, and that is not a road that we want to go down at all. You know, and that concerns me greatly. I think, and in that cheerful note, and that cheerful, I think as well. I think, I think the next pre-trial hearing is December twelfth, and then the kind of full things expected next spring. So obviously, we'll have our eyes on that. Yeah. Um. But yeah. That's it for today, and I think. I should just add oh. that I'm in Wick tomorrow. In Wick tomorrow. In Caithness. I'm doing a talk for, yes, Caithness in the Nethercliff Hotel in Wick at 7 o'clock on Saturday. So if any of you are in Wick, Thurstall, Caithness, please come along, meet me and the Doug. Uh, there's going to be a buffet. Food. My word. Food. There's uh -huh. food. And it's always good when they give you food. <laughs> I'm, always, oh, I'm only going there for a free dinner. Definitely in no there just in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, so that was the main news this week. Other than that, oh, oh yeah, I was also, apparently, I, I didn't see it myself, but I was told that um, I'm in a video. What video? Manky shirt guy. 
Is that right? Put out a video about me. About you slagging About me slagging me off, apparently. I haven't seen it. But apparently he's insulting me. Uh, my husband watched it and he said he was obviously very clearly not saying what he wanted to say. <laughs> <laughs> says it was, he says he just called you an oddball. Which, to be honest, I think is fair comment. You know, but you know, I mean, a Holocaust-denying fascist doesn't <laughs> doesn't approve of me. How will my self-esteem ever recover? This is devastating. I'm surely, devastating. I just wake up greeting it. You'll have to you know, just reevaluate everything about it. I know, it. I know, I know. My God, I don't have the approval of a fascist. How will I cope? <laughs> So anyway, next week uh, we'll probably have more election news. Callum will still probably be busy. <laughs> and, uh, we'll be back next week. Thank so, you for listening, as always, everyone. It was a pleasure, Stuart. It absolutely was. Thank you. Uh, bye. Bye, everyone.